Well, good morning, and uh, before we jump into Acts chapter 4, I want to update you on some really exciting next-gen news regarding our Southwind's future. In four weeks from today, December 3rd, we are going to be breaking ground for our new 700-seat auditorium. We have gotten to this point where we can move ahead in this direction, and we will be giving you more information in the next few weeks as we get closer, but just want to encourage you to uh, mark this down on your calendars uh, so that you can be a part of that. Now, in addition, groundbreaking uh, means that we are going to be closing on our financing at the end of this month, November, just a few weeks, and so with that in mind, I want to encourage every one of us who can uh, to just give as much to NextGen as we are able in the next few weeks. Uh, every dollar that we bring to a closing means a dollar less that we're going to have to borrow. And so you can make a real impact now if you're able to do any kind of accelerating in what you're, you're planning to do. Uh, some of us may need to catch up on our NextGen commitment. This would be a great time uh, to put some energy toward that. Some of us may be caught up. We just want to get ahead uh, but, but I just want to encourage all of us, if we can, to make November the best next-gen month that we've ever had in this entire season so far uh, as we give to the future that God has for us above and beyond our regular giving. So uh, today we're going to be reading Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. And as we do that, we are going to be talking about an incredible claim that Peter makes it is a claim that Christians have been making now for over 2,000 years, and it is a claim that is increasingly considered to be rude and arrogant and even intolerant in the culture that we live in today. Let me read uh, these verses, and then we're going to talk about what they tell us. Luke writes, beginning in verse 1, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. 
Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. And this is the word of the Lord. Now, I probably don't need to tell you that in 21st century America, one of the most common objections to Christianity is that it is too narrow. The claim that Christians make that Jesus is the only way to salvation seems kind of arrogant, and it also seems unfair. Now, to a lot of people, it sounds like you know someone who's never heard of Jesus, they live their life and they die, and as they die, God shows up at their deathbed and says, ha, you didn't receive Jesus. And they say, Jesus who? And God cackles too late now as he sends them screaming down into hell. You know, they go tumbling down into hell, crying out, wait, wait. And God just says to them, tough cookies like in Latin or something. <laughs> it just seems kind of unfair that God would have some arbitrary rule that lots of people don't even know about as the only way to get to heaven. And in addition to that, it's just kind of an unspoken rule in our culture that you don't tell people their religion is wrong. I mean, if you want to see people to see you as a civilized and educated person, a kind and a good person, then don't say anything that suggests you think your belief system is superior to anyone else's. Now, most people think it's okay to be sincere about your religion, but just don't get any too excited about it. And certainly never, ever try to convince anyone else, never, ever try to convert anyone else. Now, Luke's account of the first miracle in Acts and what happens next addresses this issue. This is Acts 3 and 4. These two chapters are kind of a, a complete unit. Last week at Southwinds, we studied the first miracle that Peter performed in chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, and you learned about witnessing. And then in verses 11 through 26, uh, Peter preaches a sermon where he is explaining the miracle that has taken place. And then... And then the powerful people of their culture respond, and they're not happy. They do not like these Christ followers proclaiming Jesus' name. I want to show you this morning three principles that we need to remember as we live in our world today, as we live in the culture God has placed us in today, as we seek to reclaim the only name that God has given us to proclaim under heaven by which men must be saved. Here, here's the first principle. Go ahead and write this down. We should expect opposition to Jesus' name. Now, just think about where we've been in Acts. So far in Acts, we, we've been seeing good news, good news, good news. The, the Pentecost happens, and this incredible move of the Holy Spirit takes place. All these Christ followers proclaiming the good news, the gospel, in all these different languages. And, and Peter preaches a sermon, and 3,000 people are saved one day. 
At the end of Acts chapter 2, we are told as, as they continue on that God is adding daily to their number. Every day in Jerusalem, people are coming to know Jesus Christ. And then you go to Acts 3, and this miracle of healing happens, and many more people come to faith. In other words, this brand new movement of God through his son Jesus Christ, it's thriving, it's healthy, it's growing. But then in Acts 4, opposition arises. Persecution hits the church. And this chapter, chapter 4, that we're going to begin to study should remind us that where growth and where health are, when God's church, God's people are thriving, there will also always be opposition. And there will often be hardship. And there will sometimes even be persecution. Just think about that as we look at verses 1 through 4. What Luke is doing here is he's just describing for us this array of powerful people who come against the apostles. We are told that the sermon that's in Acts chapter 3 is still going on. While Peter and John, they're still speaking to the people, still explaining how and why this miracle of healing took place. While this is going on, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees, they come up and they are greatly disturbed. Now, we know from the Gospels that Jesus disturbed these leaders greatly with his claims to be God's son. And we know from the Gospels that part of their disturbance had to do with their political concerns. They're disturbed politically because they were afraid that Jesus' claim to be Messiah would cause the Romans to come in, take over, and take away their power. But Luke is also telling us here that they were disturbed theologically because the apostles were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now, just to clarify for you, the, the Sadducees here, they are the wealthy elites of this culture. They were what we might today call theological liberals. They didn't accept all of the Old Testament scriptures. They only believed that the Pentateuch, the first five books of our Bible, uh, were God's word. That's all they accepted. And on top of that, the Sadducees, they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They did not believe there was any life beyond the grave. That was why they were so sad, you see. Thank you very much. That's what 10 years of graduate school gets you sometimes. So. Now, so Acts 4.3 says that these powerful leaders, they, they crack down. They arrest Peter and John. They, they put them in prison. And this is should remind us that Jesus has never promised us as his people an easy life. Jesus actually promised the exact opposite. In John 16, Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. That is a promise. How many of you have ever claimed that promise of God, huh? I'm going to stand on that promise that Jesus said, I will have tribulation. We don't like that promise. It's a promise. It's part of life in this fallen, broken world. Uh, a few decades after this story, in 2 Timothy 3.12, the apostle Paul is going to write these words. He says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so God's people living in a fallen world have always faced opposition. Now, in America, we as Christians sometimes don't really get this because we typically, we historically haven't faced too much of that. We've actually historically experienced an unusual blessing of religious freedom in our country for over 200 years now. 
And some of us really should wake up and realize there are many indications in our culture that tell us that may not continue. And if opposition increases, if persecution one day comes even to us, God's word tells us we shouldn't be surprised. God's word tells us we should expect it. Now, sometimes today, we don't really face opposition or persecution, but sometimes some of us have bought a lie that says something like this, you know, if I really follow Christ, then everything in my life is going to go well. And maybe you're here today and you're facing a difficulty in your life and it's causing you to doubt God's goodness in your life today. Maybe you're going through some trial and the enemy is lying to you and saying, you know, you should just face up to it. God is not good. You can't trust him. Why would he let that happen to you? Is there anywhere in your life where you are buying into that lie? Anywhere at all? We, we should expect opposition as we proclaim the name of Jesus. A couple of things I want you to remember here, just to flesh out what I've just said. Write this down. Don't succumb to the lie that following Jesus exempts us from difficulties. We just need to not believe that lie. And then second, when you face opposition, strengthen your heart with the truth of God's word. Do you remember in the wilderness when Jesus faced his 40 days of temptation, how he withstood those temptations from Satan? We, we are told that he was clinging to the truth of God's word again and again and again. And, and so must we. I've asked you this many times before. I'm going to always ask you this. Are you reading God's word? Are, are you receiving the truth of God's word into your life? Are you thinking about it and allowing it to shape the way you think? Are you trusting in God's word. So one of the things we need to remember that even in opposition, we should never think that God is not at work. In fact, I want you to notice verse four. It says, but many who heard the message believed and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Now, why does Luke put verse four after verses one through three, after this arrest? I think he wants us to see that even when we face opposition, even when persecution comes, God is always continuing to be at work. Uh, John Stott, a great scholar and preacher, said this, they can arrest the apostles, but they cannot arrest the gospel. The word of God will not be bound. Now, the next thing we need to remember, the second thing I want you to see, second principle, is that when we face opposition, we need to stay focused on proclaiming Jesus' name. Verses 5 through 7 describe what happens next. Peter and John are standing before these powerful, very intimidating people. Annas is the first one mentioned. He's called the high priest, but he actually wasn't high priest at this time. He had been earlier. This is kind of like how we would today refer to Barack Obama as President Obama or George W. Bush as President Bush, even though they're not serving in that role now. Annas is the patriarch of the high priestly family, and then his son-in-law Caiaphas is mentioned. He is actually the current high priest when this happens. John is there. He's Annas' son, and he's going to end up becoming the high priest. And so in other words, this is a big deal. These are powerful people, and these people bring Peter and John before them. And you have to imagine that as Peter and John stand in front of these people, they were thinking about Jesus Christ. Their Lord. Do not forget that in Acts 4, we're just a few months probably down the road from the crucifixion of Jesus. 
These are the men, same players, who are at Jesus' trial. Did Peter and John see them and wonder if they would face a fate like Jesus? See, just a few months earlier, these same men had received false witness about Jesus, and they had used that false witness to condemn him to death. They had to be wondering, are they going to pay some people to tell lies about us too so that we too can be crucified? In verse 7, these leaders asked the same question that they had asked Jesus after he had cleansed the temple. They said, by what power or what name did you do this? And then we come to verses 8 through 12, this magnificent response from Peter. It says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel... It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Now, Peter stays focused on proclaiming the name of Jesus. How does he do this? A couple things to notice. The first thing that we need to do as well is depend on the Holy Spirit's power. Verse 8 begins saying that Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you know this is the fulfillment of a promise that Jesus made to them in Luke chapter 21, verses 12 through 15? This is what Jesus said. He said, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. What an amazing promise. Jesus says, you're going to be delivered up. You're going to face opposition and persecution, but don't worry. I'm going to give you words, and I'm going to give you wisdom, and that is exactly what happens here. And it is exactly what is also promised to us when we face opposition. If we depend on the Holy Spirit, he will empower us still. He will guide us still as we seek to tell others about Jesus. I love verse 9. Maybe you noticed it. If you didn't, let me point it out. Verse 9 is snarky, okay? Did you notice that? Peter is basically saying, by the way, can we all just acknowledge that what happened here was a good deed? That a man who was crippled from birth now walks. Is that really why y'all are so upset? That's what he's asking. And you know, sometimes people get so entrenched, maybe in religiosity, sometimes so entrenched in their own beliefs, they can't even see when something amazingly good happens right in front of them. We need to stay focused by depending on the Holy Spirit's power. But we also need to do what we see Peter doing next, and that is to make the gospel message clear. That's part of staying focused. Verse 10 says, Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. What Peter is doing here is very, very simple. He keeps pointing them directly to Jesus. He says, it is Jesus' name that has made this man well. That's not a magical incantation, just saying a name. The name of Jesus represents everything about who Jesus is and everything about what Jesus did. 
in fact, you could say that verse 10 is, a, is really just a very simple gospel presentation. It's just all about Jesus. And then Peter says, you crucified him. And then Peter says, God raised him from the dead. You put that together, that's the good news right there. Um, you might also notice this. If you find that you don't think it's ever appropriate to confront someone with their sin, then you really need to deal with what Peter does. Peter says to them, did you see it? You crucified him. He highlights their personal guilt. And this isn't the first time he's done this. Have you noticed this as we've been reading in Acts? He's done it in Acts 2. He does it again in Acts 3. And now he's doing it again in Acts 4. Someone might say, well, it wasn't me. I wasn't there. Interestingly, a lot of the people that Peter and John are talking to were there. They were the ones who had, who had condemned Jesus to death. But even if they hadn't been there, even if they weren't responsible in that moment, they were responsible because all of us are responsible. You see, the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus went to the cross. Why? Because of our sin. Jesus went to the cross because of my sin. Say my sin. That's why he went to the cross. We were the enemies of God. Jesus died for our sin. Our sin put him there. Therefore, all of us are responsible for crucifying him. And Peter points that out. This is part of the gospel message. But then Peter gives the good news. God raised him from the dead. God did what he is best at. He took what we meant for evil and he turned it into our eternal good. He brought about our eternal salvation. He, he used Jesus' death to ultimately raise our dead spirits to life. Have, have you noticed in the book of Acts how the apostles keep focusing on the resurrection? Do you, when you talk to people about Jesus, do you point them to the resurrection? You're not telling them the gospel if you're not telling them about the resurrection. The resurrection is what proves that everything Jesus claimed about himself and about what he did was true. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then whatever he did and whatever he said, not true. But because he lives today, because God raised him from the dead, what he said he was and what he said he did is true. And because of his resurrection, we now have the hope of forgiven sins, the hope of eternal life. It's about the resurrection. Do you tell people about the resurrection? Now, in verse 11, as we see Peter do every message, he proclaims Christ and then he brings Old Testament scripture in to support it. And he refers to two passages. You can look them up later. Uh, Isaiah 28, 16, and Psalm 118, 22. And he, he talks about them, and here's why this is important. Peter is talking about something that Jesus had talked about. Uh, Jesus had also referred to these texts uh, in Luke 20, uh, verses 9 through 19. You can look that up again later, too. And Jesus said that he is the cornerstone, or as the NIV, NIV translates it, the capstone. Uh, I want you to understand, Peter and Jesus are both saying the same thing. They are both saying that when Jesus came as God's son, as Messiah, he would be rejected. Leaders would reject him. People would reject him. But he would become the cornerstone or the capstone. He would become the foundation of God's people, the foundation of God's movement, the foundation of the church. 
And the point that both Peter and Jesus are, are making is this. And listen to this. What we do with Jesus determines everything. How we respond to Jesus' death and resurrection is a matter of life and death. It determines whether we are part of God's people or whether we will be destroyed. See, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. Peter declares that, and then in verse 12, he makes this statement, this message that our culture hates, this message of exclusivity. Uh, Peter says, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Do you see that he says the same thing twice? He wants to make sure you get it. No one else, no other name. There's only one name. Now, let me remind you, if you are a Christ follower, this is the message of Christianity and has been the message of Christianity from the very beginning for 2,000 years years now. Our message always has been inherently Jesus only. Our message as followers of Christ has never been Jesus, you know, if that's your jam. Our message has never been Jesus or Islam, Jesus and Buddhism or, or whatever. Our message has never been, Jesus is okay for you, but I'm going to go with what works for me. It's never been that. It's always been exclusive. It's always been no other name. It's always been no one else under heaven given to men by which we can be saved. It's always been that message. It's always been exclusive. It is what makes our faith what it is, what makes our faith unique. Jesus is the only way. You know, a lot of people try to get around that, and they try to say, well, you know, um, you know it just doesn't really matter what you believe as, as long as you believe, as long as you're sincere. I mean, how many of us have heard people express something like that? Just be sincere. That's what matters. But have you stopped to consider that you can be sincerely wrong? I mean, I, we could give dozens, hundreds of examples if we stop to think about people who've been sincerely wrong and been sincerely dead because of their mistaken belief. Sincerity is not a test of truth. Uh, maybe you could think of it this way. I, you know, Pastor Jay, he's into parachuting, skydiving, crazy, stupid, weird stuff. You know, <laughs> like, who would do that? But imagine you're like at a jump school and they're doing the training, and at this jump school, they say, hey, great news for everybody today. We have this new state-of-the-art parachute. It's never been used before. It's the best thing ever. And even better news, we have the creator of this parachute with us today to show us how to use this incredible parachute. But imagine that you and your friend, you're going to this jump school. There's bad traffic because you live in the Bay Area, and you get there late, and you don't hear the instruction and so you're putting this stuff on, and you're going, what do I do? I mean, do I pull here? Do I pull there? I mean, how does this work? How do I use this parachute? And what if your friend says, ah, don't worry, just do whatever. It's good. I'm sure it will work. And I would say, I don't know about you, but I would say, well, good luck with your adventure. Because I'm going to go talk to the creator of this thing because I want to know and I want to hear how it actually is intended to work. 
And what Christianity really says is this. There is a creator, and he has designed the universe in a particular way, and he has provided the way to restore us to him. And the good news is he's told us about that way. The creator has spoken in his word, and he never says, God never says, there are many ways. He never does. God's word clearly says Jesus is the only way. And I could read you many, many verses about that. Let me just give you one of the classic verses besides Acts 4.12. It's John 14.6. You're familiar with it. This is Jesus himself speaking. And Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you hear the absoluteness of that statement. He says it more than once. He says it in different ways. I'm the only way. There's only one name. Now, if you think about what's going on in John 14, you'll see that Jesus gives three answers to the question, why is he the only way? Let me give them to you. First, he tells his disciples that he's the only way because of who he is. If you go back and read the account, you'll you'll hear about this dialogue that Thomas has with Jesus. And Thomas wants Jesus to show them, tell them the way. But, you know, Jesus responds in a different, different way completely. Thomas says, in essence, what most religions do. He says, give me the destination, Jesus, and I'll, I'll do my best to make my own way to get there. You realize that most religions are basically human attempts to get back to God, to get back to heaven. But when Jesus says that he's going to prepare a place, it doesn't mean he's going to build a room. It's telling us that it is in his crucifixion and resurrection that he makes the way. The way is him through his death and through his life. Jesus doesn't say, and this sets him apart from every other founder of every other religion. He doesn't say, follow my way. He says, follow me. Jesus doesn't say, my way is your way. Jesus says, your way is me. I am the way. Jesus says to us, I went to the cross and I paid for sin and I rose again and there is nothing, nothing you can do except unite to me in faith and then in me you will have the way to be restored to God. Second reason Jesus is the only way is because of who he reveals. Jesus says, I am the way and then he says, I am the truth. Jesus is the truth of God, not a, a, a truth about God. He is the truth of God, the supreme revelation of who God is. Jesus isn't just saying some true things about God. He's the truth of God. Jesus says in another place, if you see me, you see the Father. And then he says, if you reject me, you reject God. He is the only way because of who he reveals. He reveals the Father. And then third, he's the only way because of what he's done. Jesus says, I am the life. The Bible teaches that mankind has a problem, and that problem is that we have sinned. And God is the author and the sustainer of life, and our sin has separated us from God, which means, therefore, we are separated from life. Separation from life means death. Death has entered our world. We are spiritually dead. That's our problem. 
And Jesus did not come to give us more religion and teach us more rules so we can learn how to be better people, become really good people. Jesus came to die and to rise again so that dead people could be brought to life. You see, this is why religion and why good works will never cut it. That's not our problem. Our problem is sin has separated us from spiritual life, separated us from God. And that's why Jesus is the only way. He's the only one who's provided the solution to our problem. Now, the Bible is very clear. Jesus himself is very clear. If you don't like what I'm saying, your ultimate problem, please understand, is not with me. Your ultimate problem is with Jesus. I'm just telling you what Jesus said. And our world doesn't like this. In fact, our world is increasingly uh, filled with hate about this. These men that Peter and John are standing in front of, they hated it. They had different reasons in our culture today, but they hated it. And so these powerful leaders give uh, these apostles a warning. And the question is, how should they respond? The question today for us is, how should we respond? Here's the third thing that I want you to see. You can write this down. When threatened, uh, we should just keep sharing Jesus' name. When threatened, just keep sharing Jesus' name. In verses 13 through 17, these elites, these religious leaders, they really don't know what to do because they are the people with all the power. They are the people with all the education. Everything is on their side, and they are looking at these men, and they can clearly tell they're uneducated guys, but they have unearthly boldness. And these uneducated guys with this unearthly boldness have undeniably performed a miracle because this healed man who hadn't walked his entire life of more than 40 years is standing right there in front of them. And you need to know everybody in that room knew this guy. Everybody in that room had been walking past this guy probably for years as he sat begging outside the temple. They knew who he was. They knew his name. They knew his condition. And now everything about him has changed. It says he's standing right there. I kind of don't think he was just standing right there. I kind of think, would you agree with me, that he was probably <laughs> jumping up and down. He was probably talking to people over here. Hey, you want to go on a run? You know, he... <laughs> jumping jacks. I don't know. I kind of don't think that he was just standing still. I think everything that they had done was hitting them right in the face. And they even admit it. They say, everybody living in Jerusalem knows what happened. They say, we cannot deny it. And in fact, there's an implication there. Did you catch it? If you want to add to that, you could probably write it down. What they really were saying, we cannot deny it, but we would if we could. They wanted to deny it. They wanted to sweep it under the rug, but they couldn't. And all they know to do, verse 18, is to exert their power. They call them in again. They command them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And that is what the world, our culture, often says to us. They tell us, you know, quit talking about Jesus. Don't bring Jesus up. Don't be intolerant. You know, how many of you have had in your life an, an example where someone, uh, not as dramatically maybe as this, but someone maybe at work or someone in your family, maybe even in your neighborhood has told you, you, you just quit talking about Jesus. Have you ever had that happen to you? Raise your hand if you've had that happen to you. 
See, a lot of us have had that happen. People don't want to hear about Jesus. And if we're honest, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand on this, but if we're honest, don't we many times do what they ask? We don't talk about him. We have lots of reasons why. They're really excuses. Do you know what yours are? It's kind of interesting if you look at this text and you think about what's going on here, you can see kind of embedded in there some of the excuses that we often come up with. Here's, I'm going to give you four of them, okay? Here's the first one that we often use. We, we, we think we don't know enough. I just don't know enough to tell someone about Jesus. You know, well, look, look at verse 13 again. It says that they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, and they were astonished and they took note they had been with Jesus. So you don't need formal education to be able to share your faith. What are the qualifications these apostles had? There's two things that are mentioned, and neither of them had anything to do with how much they knew. First, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Second, they'd been with Jesus. That's all you need. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Anyone who follows Jesus can be. Are you walking in the Spirit? See, if you're a Christ follower, we talked about this when we were studying chapter 2. You've been given the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is always working in us, and the Holy Spirit is always glorifying Jesus. And so if you have the Holy Spirit, you're not going to be able to help but speak the name of Jesus because he wants to do that. They'd been with Jesus is the second thing, and it actually points us to the second reason that we often don't talk about Jesus. You can write this down. We're not walking with Jesus. Again, in verse 13, it says, they took note these men had been with Jesus. If you go to verse 20, it says, Peter and John say, we, we, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And here's what I want you to understand. If you are walking with Jesus, you will always have something to share. That was a really good place for an amen. I'm just letting you know. You're always going to have something to share, a story, a testimony, a witness. Have you ever considered the possibility that maybe you're not telling anyone about Jesus because you're not really walking with Jesus and therefore you don't really have anything to share? Uh, they, they said, in verse 20, Peter and John, we cannot help speaking. In other words, they just can't keep it in. And you know what they're talking about here. You really do because you've done it many times in your life, right? Whenever something good happens to you, you just have to tell people about it, right? Isn't that how you live? Um, for example, this just comes to my mind, kind of out of the blue. I don't know. The World Series. The World Series came to a glorious end on Wednesday, right? I mean, it was an amazing, amazing, awesome game. And think about it. If you're an Astros fan, you cannot help but talk about, speak about how the Astros beat L.A. In fact, I will tell you, as your pastor, just to be honest and transparent, beat L.A. are three of my favorite syllables in the entire English language. I just like to say them. Beat L.A., beat L.A. It just sounds great. And some of you are here today, and you're Dodgers fans, and I know you're here, and I'm not really sorry that I'm saying this. 
I just got to be honest, okay? You know, I love to talk about beating L.A. I've been talking about it all week. It's awesome. I'm so excited. Because that's what happens, right? When something good has happened to you, you're going to talk. So are you not talking about Jesus because you're not walking with Jesus? I thought about another Bible story that's kind of comes at this from maybe a little bit different angle. It's in 1 Kings 3, um, and maybe you know the story. It's, it's when King Solomon is ruling over, over Israel, and these two women who are prostitutes, they come before him, and they tell him this crazy story. These two prostitutes shared a house together. They had both given birth to a baby within three days, the story says, of each other. And one night, one of the prostitutes rolls over on her baby in her sleep, and her baby dies. A little bit later in the night, she wakes up. She sees that her baby is dead. And so she goes over to the other lady who's sleeping, and she switches the babies. You know that story? Next morning, the second woman wakes up, and she sees the dead baby, but she looks and figures out, I mean, your moms, all you moms, you, you understand this. She figures out real soon, this is not her baby. She knows her baby. And they begin to argue. They begin to fight. And they're, they're having this conflict. And they finally come into the king for a ruling. They're fighting over whose baby the living baby really is. It's like she said, she said going on right here. And Solomon, he, he can't decide from that. Uh, all he hears is what each woman is saying. And so he says to them in some great wisdom, he said, I know what we'll do. This will resolve it. Let's cut the baby in half. You could each have a half. I told you it's a crazy story. And the woman whose baby was dead, who was pretending that the, real, the, the other woman's baby was really her baby, she said, okay, that's fair. But the real mother of the baby says, no, no, let her have him. Don't kill my baby. See, when you love someone, you will speak up for them, right? And for that mom, she was going to speak truth, even if it meant she would never see her son again. See, for Peter and John, here's what's going on. And maybe you can write this down and think about it. The pressure they faced from the outside cannot stop the pressure they felt from the inside. Because they were walking with Jesus, they had to share their love for him. Here's the third reason. Our lives don't bear witness to the truth of Jesus. Sometimes, be honest, right? We're, we're ashamed to talk about him because we know we're not living in a way that honors him. In verse 14, the, the leaders could see this man who was healed standing there with them. That meant there was nothing they could say. Verse 16, they say, what are we going to do with this man? Everyone knows in Jerusalem they've done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. What are they saying? They're saying their lives bore witness. What they had done, it was obvious that God had used them to heal this man. You see, your life, your life as well as your words must bear witness to the truth of Christ. And so that's a question. You know, are, are, are you going to stay faithful? Will you speak and will your life bear witness? The fourth reason, we're caving in to the world's pressure. We're listening to the world more than we're listening to God. And the world is telling us every day, isn't it? Don't you judge. The world is saying, don't be intolerant. 
And we listen to that, and we get intimidated, and some of us just shut up. Instead of listening to the God who is telling us, I'm sending you to be my witnesses to my son, Jesus, and Jesus, my son, is the only way. For there is no other name given under heaven to men by which they must be saved. We're caving into the world's pressure. We're listening to the world more. That's not what Peter and John did. Did you notice verse 19? It says, they replied, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. They just say, we're going to listen to God, not you. The irony here is that these rulers are actually the ones listening to the people. Verse 21 says, after further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. And so, you know, if they were really serious about their judgments, if they were really right, they should have punished these men because they were speaking falsehood, but they're more worried about the people, and they know the people are praising God for this miraculous healing. The apostles say, we're going to listen to God. We're not going to cave into the world around us. And the question for today, in 2017, here at Southwinds, what about you? See, we live, we live in a world here in Tracy, here in the Bay Area, across our nation, a world that is constantly, every day, shoving down on us an idea, a false definition of tolerance. They're telling us, we are being told in so many ways, you got to be tolerant. We're hearing it every day. We are being told that tolerance requires that we deny what God tells us in his word, that we deny what Jesus claimed about himself. Do you understand that our culture's definition of intolerance, intolerance, is false. It's actually inherently contradictory. Uh, Here's what tolerance has meant until just a few years ago. This is a dictionary definition. Tolerate means to allow the existence, occurrence, or practice of something that one does not necessarily like or agree with without interference. That's what tolerance, tolerate, has meant until just recently. You allow Something's existence, even though you don't agree with it, you don't interfere with it. But here's how our culture has changed the definition of tolerance. Our culture now tells us tolerance means you must accept as valid and as true someone else's opinion, even though it doesn't line up with yours. See, the world around us really is telling us you got to be tolerant, except... You don't have to be tolerant of someone who believes their way is the only true way. Then it's okay to be intolerant. That's what it means to be tolerant. That's what the world's telling us. Now, this is a huge issue. This claim that Jesus is the only way to salvation, our our culture's counterclaim that all views are equally valid, and there are many of us who really don't know what we're to do with this. And so here's what we're going to do. Next week, I'm going to be coming back to this. Uh, Next week, I'm going to be talking in more depth about how we respond to our culture's claim, how we live in light of what Jesus tells us he is and what we should believe, and how we use that to interact with what our culture teaches. See, today we've been talking about what we believe. Next week, we're going to talk about how we defend that. And so, 
I want to invite you back next week. I want to encourage you to make sure you're here. I want to encourage you to invite all your friends. I want to encourage you to come together, pray this week that God will give me clarity and help me to say exactly what needs to be said so that we can study God's word together and we can think this through. But between now and then, will you be praying? Will you be thinking about how God wants you to communicate his truth, his love, his grace to this world in which we live? Uh, I want to leave you thinking about these courageous disciples. Peter and John couldn't help but speak the name of Jesus because they'd been with him. They knew him. They knew what he was done. They, they couldn't contain what they had seen and heard. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit always magnifies Jesus. And they were compelled. They were motivated to tell people because they really believed there was no other way for people's lives to be made right. There was no other way for people to be saved. This is what they believed. This is what gave them the strength not to cave into the world's pressure. They were proclaiming there is only one name. And these same things are what will give us what we need to face this world in which we live and speak truth in love with grace. I'm gonna encourage you to bow your heads and we're gonna pray. And as you're praying... We are going to be receiving and sharing in the Lord's Supper together. Will you ask God to speak to you? What is it that you need to hear from him today, right now, from his word? Father God, we give you thanks. We give you praise for Jesus, your son. And we ask, Lord, that as we contemplate your word, and as we think about the world in which we live, that we would be filled with your spirit and we would have courage and faithfulness to stand and to speak truth with love and with grace. We ask these things now, Father, in the name of your son, Jesus, who is the only way to be made right with you, the only name by which we must be saved. And all God's people together said,